Alchemy is an ancient practice associated with science, chemistry, physics, astronomy, astrology, art, symbology, metallurgy, medicine, and philosophical analysis. And despite that these sciences were not exercised in a scientific way as known today, alchemy is the origin of modern logic. Assalamu alaikum, dear listeners. Uh, and welcome to the third episode of The Alchemy of Truth. Um, we're very excited to have um, a very good guest with us, but we're not going to introduce her first. Um, so we just got to stay on ice for that. Good. Um, this show I've started to uh, run because I think it's quite important that we identify issues as they appear. So that um, as soon as uh, you know, we're aware of them, we can sort of prepare for them, we know what to do, and we, we fix these issues, especially something like this, which contributes to our identity as Australian Muslims, as Muslim Australians, Muslims living in Australia, Australians who happen to be Muslims, however way you want to um, uh, define it. And the issue is, of course, Islamophobia, which, inshallah, we're going to be doing a number of shows about, this being the first show. Um... I would like to start by yeah. So I would like to start by introducing our guest today, who is Sister Rebecca K. Is it K? It is K. Assalamualaikum, Sister. Wa alaikum salam, rahmatullah, wa barakatuh. And uh, welcome to the studio. Thank you for coming at such short notice. Thank you for allowing me to be here tonight. I'm very <laughs> excited. Inshallah, it's going to be a great show. Um, I would also like to welcome. Our um, guest, I mean, not our, our co-host, which is Amr. Amr is in the uh, multimedia studio next door, and he's going to be taking care of the Facebook and the Twitter accounts. Whenever, if any of our listeners would like to contribute, you can call us on uh, Sydney number 02-9724-3355. And uh, if you like, you can also contribute through, through the Facebook group, facebook.com slash truth. And as I mentioned last week, if you don't know how to spell Alchemy of Truth, you do not deserve to be listening to the show. Um, so the first thing we'd like to talk about is an introduction to Islamophobia, uh, which is something that we've been hearing a lot about. Uh, some people have been saying that it's rife in the Muslim in, in the West against Muslims, uh, and other people saying that it's just something that Muslims use to try and stop any uh, criticism of Muslims, their actions, or even uh, Islamic um, uh, religion. So um, we start um, with the introduction that we have uh, that Islamophobia, or well, phobia actually is an uh, irrational fear. Mm. So like for example, claustrophobia is fear of uh, being in Tight dark, spots. Yeah, in confined spaces. Arachnophobia. Arachnophobia is fear of spiders, which I have. You I have, have cockroachophobia. I don't know what that's oh, called. I'm the same. Cockroaches? Yuck. Yeah. No. It's just uh, from my years of war in Iraq. I, I'm not scared of bullets, but I'm scared of cockroaches. <laughs> um, so basically, Islamophobia is something that we've started to see more and more in our lives. Um, whenever we turn on the TV, um, Rebecca may help me with some of the, um, I guess, politicians or media personalities that sort of make it their bread and butter to, to scare people from Muslims. Mm. So for example, uh, Cory Bernardi. I was going to say that name um, too. Fred Niles. Fred Niles. Um, Bolt, what's his name? Andrew Bolt. He's a columnist. Um, yep. They seem to uh, jump onto the Islamophobia 
bandwagon every time they are going low in the polls or they need to create some hysteria or kind of bring some attention to themselves. It puts them back in the spotlight. There are a lot of politicians that use Islamophobia to gain votes. Votes, uh, that's right. Basically to gain any sort of uh, listener or watcher or reader. Mm. And it's very very unfortunate as well. Um, What I'd like to start with is is give a basic rundown of um, basically the history of, I guess you can call it Christendom and uh, the countries of Islam. Uh, the Khilafah, I guess you could call it. Mm. Uh, this is something that, as I was telling um, uh, Rebecca before, is something that's been going on since the establishment of the Khilafah and um, the, the interaction with between Muslims and non-Muslims in terms of wars and, and other, um, other interactions as well. So basically, um, when Muslims, for example, opened up the lands of Egypt, Palestine, Syria, etc., uh, these were all owned or controlled by Byzantines. Uh, so they, these were the Roman empires in, in uh, the Eastern Rome, Roman Empire. Uh, and of course, uh, later on, the, uh, under the control of the, or under the um, leadership of the Ottomans, um, Sultan Muhammad al-Thani uh, II um, was able to take control of, um, what's the, Constantinople, which was the center of the Byzantine Empire. And he turned it to, um, what's the name, the name of it? I uh, can't help you here. This is, Istanbul. This is definitely yeah. all up your alley. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> this, this, of course, was a great success for Muslims and for, uh, you know, Christendom. It was a great blow. Uh, then, you know, the Crusades came and, you know, about two, three hundred years of war were established. But even before that, I mean, the, the rise of Spain, Muslim Spain, and then the fall of Muslim Spain, uh, the, um, you know, decades and centuries of war over the, uh, the Balkan uh, frontier where countries and territories would be taken back and forth and back and forth between Muslims and um, Christians. This basically continued until the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So it's not, it's not something small. It's not one or two wars. Um, this, of course, doesn't mean that um, you know Muslims and Christians have to be fighting all the time. It just um, is a rundown of the history. Um, this, again, is very interesting because during the times of the Crusades, for example, we have records of what Christians defined Muslims as. Mm-hmm. So, for example, they uh, many Christians knew Muslims as um, uh, you know, uh, worshipping three gods. Uh, one of them is with the head of a dog and the other one's called Mohound or something like that. I don't remember it exactly. But basically, even though Islam and Christianity come from the same uh, root, which is Ibrahim alayhi salam, and uh, you know, uh, uh, Isa alayhi salam also is one of our prophets, um, we recognize what Christianity was and what Judaism was. But for Christians, they always seem to view Islam as whatever they weren't. And so this is, again, something that's continuing on until now. We have to ask yourself the question, is this a reflection of Muslims, that Christians do not know about what Islam represents? This is something that's, again, fascinating, because Mm. when I had, at the beginning of the year, a number of interviews with media personalities and um, uh, people who basically make it their bread and butter to, to interact with the media, they all said the same thing. 
and this is something that I've also seen personally, is that the biggest weapon Muslims have in Australia is themselves. Mm. So rather than giving out DVDs or pamphlets, rather than get making lectures or anything like that, just them going out into the, um, uh, the wider community, just being themselves, you know, Agreed. being friendly. A hundred percent. Exactly. And, and I mean, not being friendly as in a, um, no disrespect to Christians, but not being friendly as in a born again Christian where it's a plastic, you know, smile and everything is happy, mm. hunky-dory and stuff like that. No, it's got to be you genuinely, you know, um, like the people around you. If a good deed or a good dawah comes from a smile. It's sunnah. You know, you help a lady across the road, you pick up your rubbish, you say good day. It's it's not that hard to put yourself out into the wider community and show them the true values of Islam. Exactly. And also, I mean, the fact is um, we like to think that us Muslims um, are ruled by um, a code of principles, of you know, uh, of of ethics, mm. of honor, of not stealing, of respecting the others, of uh, not uh, engaging in any form of corruption. So this is something again which can um, distinguish us as being people who are, um, you know, people of of honor. Again, I mean, just like Prophet Sallam was known amongst the Muslims as being a uh, sadiq al-amin, the truthful one and the one That's right. um, with uh, what do you call it, the one who is uh, able to be trusted. Yes, the trustworthy one. Uh, and so this is. Again, this is something that we're going to be talking about later on. Um, uh, are going out into the public. Actually, I have to write a note here about an ayah, which is very interesting. Um, yeah. Inshallah, I'll get back into this one as well. Um, yeah, so that, again, distinguishes us from anyone else. As I was mentioning before, Samuel Huntington, uh, the person who wrote The Clash of Civilizations, um, book, he mentioned that out of all the uh, uh, colonized nations, so many of them, you know, for example, forgot the language, um, adopted the language of the colonizer, adopted the religion of the colonizer, sometimes even the names uh, and, and cultural history of the colonizer. This was successful in most countries except for uh, countries and areas where Muslims were um, uh, colonized. It's still happening today. It's still happening today, but it's also it's very interesting because, for example, I was uh, listening to the radio today. They were talking about Algeria. Algeria was invaded or colonized for 130 years, and at some point, the French, because it was uh, colonized by the French, the French viewed Algeria not as a colony. They viewed it as part of Algeria, of, of France. Sorry, just like, for example, now I guess um, Australia is viewed as part of. You know, Britain. England yep. or Britain, uh, the same thing. They viewed Algeria as just part of part of um, France, um, and they they banned the learning of Arabic, for example. And this would have succeeded, because it did succeed in many sub-Saharan countries in Africa, where they were Muslims and they spoke Arabic, but Arabic was banned, and now they only speak French. They only speak English. When you look, there's I mean tribes and and places in, for example, Madagascar or sub-Saharan Africa, where they have copies of the Quran that are 700, 1,000 years old, Mashallah. but they're not Muslims. Even though they wear Islamic dress, the thobe, even though when they're getting married, for example, it's all Islamic costumes, but they're not Muslim because Islam has been taken away from them that way. With a Bible. Yeah, with a Bible. I and mean, food. there was, I mean, in, in many cases, that's very correct. <laughs> there was a very famous uh, Kuwaiti da'ya. His name was, I think, Abdullah Samit. He spent about 35 years traveling Africa, making da'wah. And he didn't actually go with money. He just went with copies of the Quran. And he would mention stories in which people living so far away, it takes about maybe 
six days of walking to reach them. And when you reach them, they're completely, um, you know, poverty stricken. They don't have anything. They have in the center of the village a very long pole made of wood. It goes up to, I think, 50 meters or something. And in it, they have their, uh, the core of, of their being, basically, because they um, worship it so much. One day he got them to bring it down, and it was a thousand-year-old uh, Quran, copy of the Quran. Allah, Allah. Th this is a, a true story. This is not something that, that I read somewhere. This guy actually ca continued going, you know, for years and years, and on his hands, you know, hundreds of thousands of Africans became Muslim, and they're still uh, Muslim until now, alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah. So again, this is something that's very strong within us, and and maybe that's why the attack. I mean, this Islamophobia is so intense. As, a pho as opposed to, I guess, uh, Hindu phobia or Buddhist phobia. Maybe they've changed uh, their ways of doing it now. They don't go with all full frontal war. They've used a new tactic now to yeah. try and colonize everyone to be the same as the West. Yeah. It seems now, I mean, uh, it doesn't seem to be a governmental initiative so much as it is um, an ideological initiative. And as we're going to go into it as well, um, you know, we, we can also go into the US and, and look into who the funders are of this wave of Islamophobia. Um, going back into how Islamophobia started, I mean, f for about the last century, most of the um, um, regimes and most of the movements that were in the Muslim world were mostly, you know, social experiments to do with communism, to do with socialism, to do with, you know, uh, pan-Arab nationalism or other nationalisms as well. Um, and even, for example, the um, uh, partition of India into India and Pakistan, it wasn't really a religious partition. It was, I mean, uh, there were, of course, Muslims and then, um, you know, Sikhs and, and then Hindus. Hindus. But it wasn't based on a religious value. Even many of the, the Muslims, like I think um, Iqbal Patel, the, the famous um, um, Pakistani poet and Islamic thinker, was against the idea. Um, the, the leader of Pakistan, the first president of Pakistan, the person who led the partition of India, uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, he was not a practicing Muslim. This was based on um, ethnic divide. Mm. So th the Muslims were seen at the time to dress differently, to marry within their own, etc. And um, this was um, seen, I guess, a way of uh, self-determination to cut India into the Muslim side and the Hindu side. Mm. Uh, and even now, in India, there's more Muslims in India than there are in Pakistan. Probably. I mean, there's, I think, about maybe 220 million or something. Um, and about 190 or 160 million in Pakistan. Um, so again, there wasn't much of a power that Islam had at the time. There was, a, you know, a strong wave of secularism up until, I guess, the last 20 years. But again... Uh, Islamophobia wasn't really um, defined in such a way until about 9-11. Uh, um, and I guess in the case of Australia as well, the case of uh, the Bali bombings. Um, I would like to give my own experiences about the, uh, you know, uh, the view towards Islam in New Zealand before and after 9-11. But I'd like to start with you, Rebecca, okay. about before you became Muslim, how you viewed Muslims and Islam. And then how do you became Muslim and then how your, um, you know, perceptions of Islam changed? Okay, uh, before I became Muslim, I was pretty ignorant to the fact that I knew nothing about Muslims except um, this common stereotype that Muslims were 
horrible to their women and they disrespected them and they beat them and they made them dress up in, you know, all these horrible clothing and they left them at home and it never really made sense to me. That was my first kind of introductions. I had a Muslim neighbour um, and we lived in a cul-de-sac and all us Aussie kids, you know, we used to play out in the front yard, cricket, football, ride our bikes. But the Muslim family, they never really came out of their house. They were always inside. Yep. So maybe comments that my parents had made or the neighbours had made about them being strange or different maybe modelled my thinking towards Muslims as I grew older. Yep. But I went to a, a, a Christian school and um, not really any Muslims there, so I didn't really interact with Muslims until I left school. And my first real introduction to more Muslims was probably um, seen on the TV and the radio, you know, the scaff rapes and the drive-by shootings and then furthermore thought horrible about Muslims that they didn't like Australian girls and they treated us like we were not equal and yeah really disrespectful were these ideas um in, inspired just by your watching the news and seeing the news or was it by commentaries and other people's comments and well i suppose both i also forgot to mention in there september 11 that played a really big part in my life as well i remember september 11 so clearly uh it was so surreal the night that the twin towers were attacked and it put islam from being a topic that wasn't talked about to a topic that wasn't not ever not talked about. Everyone talked about Islam. Everyone talked about terrorism. Everyone had this fear mongering. I remember one time being so afraid to live in Sydney because I thought that we were going to be attacked by Muslims. And another time when there was, I think it was 2003, there was really, really bad bushfires. And one of my girlfriends told me that it was terrorists attacking Australia and that would be the best way for them to attack Australia by burning the forest down. Wow. <laughs> it's so funny now. But at the time, I was afraid. And yeah. I actually went to the entrance <laughs> and stayed there for a couple of days until all the bushfires went away. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. I know, just laugh at me. It's so funny now. But seriously, yeah, there was a lot of fear-mongering after September 11 and just being a typical Aussie chick, no real interaction with any Muslims whatsoever except for what you've seen on TV and what you've seen out in the city at night time. Um, it wasn't a very good picture. Yep. Um, how did you then, I mean, I don't want to make this show about conversion, but this is, <laughs> of course, very important. How did you then become Muslim? What made the change for you? Uh, when I met my husband, he introduced me to Islam. Um, Alhamdulillah. When I met him, he took me home to his family and it was the holy month of Ramadan. So that was my first introduction to practicing Muslims and the serenity and the experience and just how peaceful the night was when they were breaking their fast. It really touched my heart. It really inspired me to learn about Islam. So then I would start to ask questions from my husband's sister. And I was so shocked to find out that you believe in God. I was like, no way. <laughs> what did you think they believed in I before? thought you believed in this person, Allah. He was like a oh, man okay. yeah, or a prophet maybe. And then to my second major happiness, I found out that you believe in Jesus. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> this is like, I can't believe it. 
It's it's very interesting that you say this because back when I was at university, um, you know, we'd have a lot of these da'wah stalls and stuff, and we'd always have this uh, pamphlet, mm. you know, what we believe about Jesus, and we're always talking about we believe in Jesus, we believe in. This is like maybe one of our most sort of uh, powerful um, ideas or you know concepts that we believe in Jesus as well, mm. and it's just very interesting as well that there's so many uh, non-Muslims out there who know nothing at all about us about the fact that we believe in a god no nothing they're starting to to catch on though these days and they're starting to learn about our religion and then kind of use it against us which is a little bit frightening but um yeah alhamdulillah when i learned about the you know el kitab the three books the prophets that were all the same as what i had been brought up to believing and that the stories of Abraham and Moses and um, Yahyeh, they were all very similar to what I had learned. So the transition from Christian or Christianity to Islam was not a massive transition. Mm. Alhamdulillah, it was very easy. I always believed that there was only one God. I never believed that Jesus was God and the the Holy Spirit and all that kind of stuff. But the belief in Allah was always there for me. So I suppose the hardest part was coming to terms that Jesus didn't die for our sins. Yeah. And this was something that you believed in before. Yeah. Were you a practicing Christian before? Um, I think... Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to... Yeah, I was kind of a practicing Christian because, like, I don't want to be disrespectful, but compared to practicing Islam... Christianity, they don't practice the same way that we do. Yep. So, um, yeah, would pray to God and talk to God and read the Bible sometimes, and that was probably all I would used to do. Okay, inshallah. At church as well, did you know the I don't know priest or minister, whatever you guys have? Um, did they say anything about Islam as well? Not in a negative way, but did they sort of give any? No. They were always about Jesus being the savior and, you know, stand up and put your hands up to your Lord and ask for forgiveness and he will save you. And yeah, church is very, um, for Christians, it's very spiritual, Mm -hmm. the singing and everyone gets involved. It's kind of like a meditating. Yeah. 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 Inshallah. Um, from my perspective as well, um, I was at the time living in a, um, southern city uh new zealand city of dunedin mm-hmm. um where i was uh, going to university there uh, and i remember we had for example we had two um islam awareness weeks in two consecutive years before september 11th and you know we we would just kill ourselves with advertisement and calling people and giving chocolates just try to get someone to come and um, learn from us you know we'd have a lecture about 20 people would come we'd be very happy 20 people mm-hmm. came you know um, after September 11th, um, all of a sudden, you know, lecture halls were filled with people. All of a sudden, there was very vigorous discussion. It was taken completely away from us, the discussion. And it was given in the hands of the, um, you know, the lesser, not the lesser known, but the previously unknown uh, scholars about Islam. At the time, I mean, New Zealand, small town. So there wasn't a lot of sort of anti-Islamic uh, sentiment. Uh, so the the lecturers basically described Islam from a uh, historical uh, anthropological point of view, mm-hmm. and so it it wasn't sort of clear to people listening to them what it meant. 
at the time as well, I remember there was um, a person who was a minister in Afghanistan and then he ran away when the Taliban took control. His name was Najibullah Lafrey. Uh, and he was a very, very good um, sort of uh, lecturer as well. And he had a class in Islam, Middle East in terrorism and Islam. And it used to always be full. Um, but I remember, for example, listening to the radio. And, you know, this person would call, this 80-year-old person would call and say, oh, in this Muslim school in, in New Zealand, they would uh, train their kids to, you know, do jihad training every day during lunchtime. Mm. And, you know, the, the radio, the talkback radio person would ask him, oh, what would they do? Like, oh, they'd be running around and hitting each other. Nothing like talkback radio to put fear into people's <laughs> hearts, right? <laughs> it was really funny. But the thing is also because I knew maybe my mum at the time Jones's was... Uh, sorry? I said maybe it was Alan Jones' brother. Oh, no, I mean, the guy, the talkback radio guy, he was actually quite uh, fair and balanced, uh, to be um, honest, uh, to be fair to him. Sorry, um, it's just a joke. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I knew that school because my mom used to teach there, so I knew for a fact that they didn't teach jihad training because otherwise I would have believed it as well. Mm. This person and many other people like him seem to be very convinced that there was some sort of conspiracy. Um, coming to Australia, though, it, it was a lot worse. I mean, you guys had firebombs thrown at school buses and mosques burnt. And I think there was pigs thrown on mosques and all pigs that Pigs thrown on mosques, yeah, yeah etc. Um, this, again, is, is very frightening. Because at the end of the day, if something happens um, halfway around the world, we haven't changed. That's right. And this is something that's, I mean, for for most Muslims, this is something that's very natural, very normal. Um, and we don't even need to think about, oh, actually, did I have something to do with this? You know, but for many non-Muslims who may have been affected by this wave of Islamophobia may actually think there is a connection, a very strong connection, enough of a connection for you to feel justified to you know, cause offense or to hurt the other person in front of you just because he's Muslim. I have a story and I have a confession. Please go ahead. I was one of those people that vented my anger towards Muslims in Australia after September 11. Wow. Yeah. Okay, we'll call the police so uh, nobody will come and trash the radio station. <laughs> but I would like to point out, subhanAllah, alhamdulillah, Allah always has a plan. And look at me now. From someone who hated Muslims and who spoke out against Muslims and, and verbally abused them in the street and told them that I don't want them in my country and to get out and, you know, this is Australia and if you don't like it here, buddy, then there's the door. A um, good accent. This is a very good invitation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, subhanAllah, alhamdulillah, look, I'm now Muslim. I advocate for Islam. I'm so proud to be Muslim. I'm like so obsessed with giving dawah. It's unbelievable. And I just want everyone to know how great Islam is. Alhamdulillah. Um, one of the gentlemen that I attacked on a train train one day, um, he he, like verbally attacked. Sorry, <laughs> he um he didn't say anything to me. He just looked at me instead. Wow, unbelievable! And I was just this angry Aussie chick, just screaming in front of everyone on the train about how he was a terrorist and how he's a murderer. And were you angry or were you scared? I I don't know. I think I was just angry. Yeah. Um, he was all dressed in white and he had a hat on and I think that it was um, Friday. Yeah. So I think he had been coming back from the prayers. Wow. Now that I'm Muslim, I know yeah. that's probably <laughs> what it was. Okay. But um, subhanAllah, he didn't react. He didn't move from his seat. He just stared at me and, and it's like he he felt sorry for me. He really did feel sorry for me. Maybe he made dua for you. Yeah, I think he did. And that's what I'm saying. Like, subhanAllah, 
you don't know what Allah has in store for people. And I was Muslim while Cronulla rights were happening, yes. I, I was very angry. I wasn't a Hajjid back then either. So okay. um, I was pregnant too. And when I seen it on the TV, I actually wanted to drive down to Cronulla with my husband and <laughs> go sort out these Aussies. <laughs> no. But um, my father was very afraid. I remember that day um, when we, because we actually drove down to Wollongong that day to see my family. And my father was very worried for my husband and his friends because mm. we had planned to go out for dinner in Wollongong that night. And because of the hysteria at Cronulla, he was concerned for my husband and his friends that something might happen to them down there. Mm. So he kind of like really advised us to stay home. And it was kind of cute because they, they don't really cook very much. My parents for, they don't like guests over. <laughs> so they cooked for us that night. Yeah, I remember the Cronulla riots. I was working overseas at the time. So I only watched it through the news. And it was just also at the time I didn't live in Melbourne. Mm. I didn't live in Sydney. Sorry, I was from Melbourne. I still am a Melbourneite, even though I live in Sydney. Mm. Uh, and so it was it was quite shocking that you'd have 4,000 people going out and looking for Muslims. And, mm. You know, it's just very scary. I think alcohol played a big part in that day as well. Mm. Well, I mean, these are experiences that we've all had. Every Muslim who's lived in Australia, unfortunately, has had. Um, but again, there was a difference from before September 11th when Muslims were seen as something exotic, mm. that they don't eat pork, that uh, they dress differently. And they minded their own business. And they mind their own business. And everyone just let them be. Yeah. Um, and then afterwards, they were seen as alien intruders, uh, third or fourth, or I don't know, X column, column that, um, th you know, they're always seen as being, you know, potentially dangerous. You know, mm. potentially each Muslim could be and this is this is the idea now that's being propagated by, by the Islamophobes that every Muslim could potentially be, you know, a dangerous um a terrorist, a murderer. And the Islamophobes have now taken on this human right advocacy that they're gonna help the women in Islam, you know, get over their oppression and their depression and, and, and stop them from being uh second class citizens. Alfred Niles is leading that course. <laughs> Yeah, inshallah. The U.S. sort of precedes Australia in many things, also in, in their Islamic development, their community development, as well as uh, Islamophobia as well. And so one very strong indication that there was, you know, something very wrong in, in the U.S. at the time was that six months before this issue of, of the Grand Zero Mosque, for example, they did a vox pop. So they just went out on the streets of New York and they asked people, what do you think of Islam? Do you mind if there's a mosque? You know, and, and most people said, oh, I don't care. You know, it's this is the land of freedom, blah, blah, blah. You know, they can build a mosque if they want. And so people, I think there was a 70%. I'm not sure of the percentage exact, exactly, so I may be wrong. But there was a high percentage of people who were favorable or didn't really care or mind that there was a mosque being uh, built. And, you know, this, of course, with mentioning that there was already a mosque there. There was a building. It was old. It wasn't being used. Some guy bought it turned into a mosque at the ground floor or something, but the building itself wasn't being developed. So the idea was to redevelop it into something which is an Islamic center, cultural mm -hmm. center. It had apparently a, a swimming pool. It had a, a theater. It had a museum, I think, as well. And a mosque was part of it. Within, a bit, I think, about six months or a year, with continuous, very vigorous uh, campaigning against the mosque, that the mosque is called the Grand Zero, Mo Zero Mosque, even it was, I think it was about maybe uh, half a kilometer or something away from the um, Gr Grand Zero in New York. 
Um, you know, there was also other issues as well of, you know, the, the, the guy who runs it, he has no connections at all with any terrorist groups. He was actually more of a Sufi person. His mm -hmm. wife, I mean, the guy, I forgot what the guy's name was. Um, completely forgot, doesn't matter. His wife's name is something Khan. I also forgot her name. <laughs> she was, I think, the president of the American Sufi Association. Uh, so, you know, they, they were quite pacifist. Um, and yet he was still always being shown as this, you know, angry, dangerous person with dangerous ties. Even though whenever you show him, he's completely calm. He's, you know, even the way he speaks is very, very calm, very well thought out. He has never, never, ever been seen to be angry or screaming or anything like that. And yet still at the end, they had thousands of people marching the streets of New York saying no to Grand Zero Mosque. We don't want Sharia. We don't want this and that, even though there is you know, dozens of mosques in that city. Mm. And even though there is, you know, churches, uh, unused churches, for example, there is all sorts of like, there was, uh, sorry, strip clubs opposite Grand Zero. But there was, it wasn't seen as being something wrong with it. It was because just there was a mosque, you know, the, the Grand Zero was, was a hallowed ground. And so you could have anything in it except for a mosque, even though it was a half kilometer away, I think about three blocks or something. We also, um, I mean, this is another... Um, um, issue as well, which we wanted to um, bring to your attention, is the fact that there was again a, um, um, a think tank in the U.S. called Center for American Progress, and there was I think one person, his name is Wajit Ali, there, who uh, spearheaded a project to try and find out what the cause of the Islamophobia was. This this you know sudden resurgence of Islamophobia, which is so strong, it's caused it's still causing so many problems. The elections, for example, this year in the, the U.S. Um, presidential elections is all about who can be the worst against Muslims. And so, you know, unfounded fears, for example, they have all these regulations against Sharia law in Australia and in New Zealand. And we're going to talk about Australia as well later on, um, even though there was no Muslim really calling for Sharia ever, mm. except there for, one. well, you know, a fringe of a fringe of a fringe. I mean, it's just one person or two people, whatever it is. It's just ridiculous that they would, you know, change the laws and make amendments to the laws just because one person is screaming and nobody's listening to him. Well, Islam is their tool to continue to invade the Middle East. So they need to keep hyping up terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. Mm. Because without terrorism, there's no need for the US to be invading the Middle East. Mm. And there's no need for them to keep donating, what is it, $1 billion a year to the aid of Israel? $4 billion. $4 billion yeah. a year? Um, I mean, this is, again, something that's very interesting. Um, there's a website that I always read, and I recommend everybody reads it as well. Uh, by the way, um, if you want to contribute, you can also, again, call us, Sydney number uh, 9724 uh, or you can contribute at um, uh, facebook.com slash alchemy of truth Institute yeah so there's a website which i think everybody should read it because it's very interesting even though it shows most of the news is about us and europe it still shows so much news about australia it's called loonwatch.com so l-o-o-n-w-a-t-c-h loonwatch.com and it's basically just a daily record of all these islamophobic slurs done um, by politicians by commentators by journalists and breaking them down to explain why such comments are Islamophobic. Mm. And it's very interesting because it gives you a real idea about how people are allowing for themselves and justifying their racism against Muslims, even though Islam is not a race. Do you think that this is some kind of reflection back on our own community? Look, um, th that is, of course, um, you, know, um, you know, a match that gets thrown into a, a barrel of oil. 
uh, no pun intended. Yeah, we have to ask yourself this question. If you say something anti-Semitic, what happens to you? You get called an anti-Semite. And doors don't close, you don't get publicly tarred and feathered. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. But, I mean, uh, this again goes back to the fact that, you know, there was hundreds of thousands of Jews massacred in, in uh, the Second World War. And so there is a strong, um, you know, uh, so sensitivity to that sort of thing. What about the hundreds and thousands that have died in Iraq? Yeah, again, and this is this is what I'm talking about, you know, justified racism. Mm. That it's fine, you know, people died in Iraq all the time and people say, oh, it's their fault for being there. It's <laughs> their fault for you know, not voting Saddam out or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame. It's really sad. Khair, inshallah. Uh, so basically what Amr was saying, it just seems to be that um, your voice is not recording here for some reason. Okay. Um, yeah, so um, what were you saying? Yes. Uh, the um, uh, Center for American Progress uh, took out a report, which Amr is going to put on the uh, group website, uh, group Facebook page, sorry, which is going to uh, include that information. Um, there's also another um, guest, which I'd like to get on the phone uh, soon, inshallah, which is going to tell us a little bit about some of the ideas of the movements that are running in Australia, you know, anti-Islamic movements. Uh, so Sister Maryam, Oh man! Yeah, I can't help you there. Yeah, <laughs> inshallah, we'll uh, we'll call her and she'll tell us how to do it. But first, I would like to play you guys a nasheed. Uh, this nasheed is called. It's actually, it's not a nasheed. Sorry, um, it's a rap song, and a it's going song. to have some music. So if you don't like music, uh, I suggest that you don't listen to it. Uh, it's it's by a very uh, well-known Syrian-American, oh actually Syrian-Canadian rapper called Omar Afendim. Uh, and it's called Syria. So have a listen to it. Let us know what you think. And we're back. I hope you uh, enjoyed the uh, rap song. It's again by Omar Fendim, and it's called Syria. And we always make our dua for our brothers in Syria to um, oust. The criminal dictator Bashar al-Assad, inshallah. Um, so what we've got now, we spoke previously uh, with Rebecca about, sorry, about the uh, you know Islamophobia um, in Australia, in, in the U.S. and now in Australia as well. Rebecca has actually been very kind to share her um, her own Islamophobia stories. <laughs> yes, I have. Before um, <laughs> don't hold it against before me. <laughs> becoming Muslim. Yeah, subhanallah. Yeah, and even uh, Umar bin Khattab was the biggest enemy of Islam before he became Muslim. So we of course uh, would not hold it against Umar bin Khattab, and we definitely would not hold it against you. Um, we also have uh, Sister Maryam. Oh my God. Vais Shada, I think. Vais Shada. Anyways, uh, who's on the phone right now, and she's going to be telling us a little bit about the experiences that she's had with, um, you know, one of these uh, Islamophobic groups in Australia. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam. How are you, sister? Alhamdulillah. How are you? Alhamdulillah. Thank you very much for uh, coming on uh, the radio. Um, can you just please pronounce your name for us? I know you told it to me before, but it's not straightforward. <laughs> That's okay. It's uh, Mariam Vaisada. Vaisada. Okay, so I'm going to write it in Arabic. Nope, still not easy. It's okay, inshallah. <laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Maryam. Oh, um, okay. I, I mean, uh, not sure where to start. I guess, uh, like Rebecca, um, I'm also um, a Muslim activist. Um, 
when issues come up, particularly around Islam and betrayal of Muslims, whether it's in the media or elsewhere, that are negative or inaccurate, um, you know, I, I guess nowadays almost feel like it's a duty for us to ensure that we correct that misrepresentation. Um, and I guess uh, ultimately, you know, we all um, vent our frustrations in various ways. And for me, mine sort of started off as Facebook rant, and they still are, Rebecca would know. <laughs> um, you know, I'll rant every now and then about, you know, what does this mean and why they said this or whatever. And, and I um, not long ago decided that, you know, in addition to my Facebook friends, you know, um, inshallah I can turn that, um, lengthen it a little bit and, and turn it into opinion pieces and, you know, see if we can get onto various TV shows. And that's sort of what I've been doing. And ultimately it's about presenting, um, you know, a, a doing better PR for Muslims. And, you know, what's, what's really refreshing is that there are so many activists within the community doing excellent work in their own ways. And, you know, Rebecca's one of them and yourself as well. So, yeah. You're too yes. kind. Assalamu alaikum, Mariam. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs> um, okay, so um, tell us a little bit, because Rebecca also mentioned to me that you've had some interaction with, you know, the, the group, or I don't know, it's groups or groups. So um, basically, um, I'd, I'd like you to tell me where they're coming from with ideas like this. I mean, some, I mean, when I went to their websites, I'm not going to, you know, tell people to visit their websites because I don't want to give them more mm, fuel. Fire. Yeah. Um, but um, from what I understood from the websites, they seem to have a very... Um, conspiratorial view of Muslims that all Muslims are somehow, you know, meeting under tables and just basically saying, let's have as many babies as we can to control Australia and install Sharia and beat up all women all the time. Uh, so, you know, what was your experience like? Yeah, look, it, it's really hard to, um, I guess, summarize or even attempt to try and explain um, what ultimately what his views are or what his rationale is, but in a, a very lengthy conversation that I did have with him, and I guess I have to explain the context, um, I'm involved in JAN, which is a branch of Mission of Hope. Yeah, the and, Justice um, and Arts Network. That's yep. right, Fantastic Justice and Arts Network. Check us out on Facebook. Yeah. Um, so we had organised a sort of um, um, a gallery, and really it was a, an art gallery sort of in protest to this whole Van der Berke movement. Yep. And um, he you know, because it was actually held in Newtown, so he decided to come along with um, to that. We also had a few other members of, um, I think, the Protection Society come along to that. And, of course, um, we didn't let these gentlemen in um, because they were going to disrupt the whole event. And so it was really my job to go out there and sort of say to them, you can't come in and, and, and how, have how a How did you know, though, that they're going to make problems for you? Uh, it, there was a lot of, um, in the lead-up to the event, there was... Um, you know, lots of information going around from various parties, you know, um, you know, this person's going to come to the event. And um, it, it's just about, I guess, ultimately, at the end of the day, we wanted, um, you know, people who genuinely were interested in Newtown to come up and have a look at the art gallery to be able to do so in peace without having someone yell in their ear. And, um, and when I was having that discussion with the gentleman that Rebecca mentioned, um, you know, he, I mean, I guess what surprises what surprised me is that he seems to be very concerned about Muslim women, and mm. on a number of occasions he's indicated to me that you know, almost like he's doing this for us and that he's trying to save us. And if you know, an event were to happen like a terrorist attack, that it would be Muslim women who would be targeted, and that um, you know, and somehow he ties this into his rationale of 
feeling the need to um, ban the burqa, you know, legally in Australia. And, and this is why they staged um, what to me seemed like a protest, but what um, he indicated to me is actually a demonstration um, to prove that people don't know how to react to women who appear, you know, in places wearing the niqab or the burqa. And so that's why that day, you know, um, they were actually seen to go into Parliament House in New South Wales and try to get in a few different places. And it was really to prove a point that it's a security threat or whatever other sort of issues that they have. But, yeah, it's very... I mean, to, to sum up, it's, it's difficult to um, understand exactly what his driving rationale behind it is. And on a number of occasions, I've had very lengthy discussions where I've refuted everything he said and I've proved him wrong, and yet he still brings another point and brings another point, and you feel like you're going around in circles. Mm, yeah. Did you feel uh, at any point that there was maybe a, a chance of, of convincing him, maybe, or getting some logic in there? Look, I think so. I remember at the time, particularly in the Newtown incident, when I was having the conversation, everybody was sort of gathered around me saying, what on earth are you doing speaking to this man? You know, and we actually also had security guards and the security guards were gathered around me because I was sitting, there was a restaurant just out the front of where um, the event was held and I was just sitting there at the table with him and a number of his colleagues and, you know, friends of his. And I think I think at one stage I met his father, if I recall correctly. But, wow. it, you know, it was just, and everybody was like sort of concerned that something was going to happen to me because there was all these other... Um, I think members from the Protectionist Party and some of the other guys, lobby groups around Newtown who are also there and every, you know, a lot of them are on very bad terms with him and you know, so for me it was really hard to have a discussion with every, every all the fuss going on around me but for me it was a matter of, you know, I, I think after sitting there for about an hour or so and also interacting with, with his friends, um, I realised that, you know, I mean I can't you know, 100% know what his intentions are but I did feel that there was a little bit of goodwill on his part to genuinely understand where I was coming from and I was really sharing my experiences with him to say do you think that your actions have no immediate impact on Muslims irrespective of whether you know someone's choosing to wear the niqab or the burqa or the hijab or not wearing hijab at all you know the your actions are directly contributing to how I feel my well-being in in a country like Australia because there's all these negative tension and anti-Muslim sentiment that's being created by something as simple as what you think is an expression of your, um, uh, what do you call it, an, an expression of your art or whatever you want to, yeah. you know, call yeah, it. Yeah. So I was trying to really give him some personal insight and also share the Muslim experience. And, and he was, he said to me, it's, it's very rare for any Muslim to sit down with him and take the time to actually hear, hear him out, and that that he quite appreciated that. And, you know, he was saying, if only there was more dialogue, um, we would, you know, be in a position to be able to move forward and understand each other rather than having this, you know, constant friction um, between us. So, yeah. That's, that's amazing. I think she needs to call him again. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did. I mean, I, I remember I, <laughs> I got his card and my husband and I sort of, said to him that we'd um, catch up with him and there was a Turkish restaurant that he was recommending that we go to that was halal. <laughs> wow. And um, I'm not sure what happened. I think um, I think I may have emailed him or I don't remember exactly what happened. But uh, I did get a lot of every a lot of people saying to me, you've got to be really careful, Mariam. You know, you don't know who you're dealing with. <laughs> and um, I'm actually 
you know, whereas me, I, I, I didn't think I had anything to be worried about. And yes, I might be a little bit naive, but I, I felt that even if I can help change his mind even one little bit, then I, I consider that, it, you know, yeah. worth it. So, yeah, I mean, Shola, we, that's something we can follow up, whether it's with um, protests or, um, you know, peaceful protests or having a direct dialogue with him or having a panel where he's invited to attend or, you know, I think the key thing is, even, I mean, like you, like you did, uh, Mariam, you know, in a sort of unofficial dialogue, something which is more relaxed, not something in which there is yes, you know, external parties and somebody wins and somebody loses or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's the key thing. And I have tried, I have called him um, following that incident as well. I, um, I contacted him um, more recently, actually, uh, just to explain to him about some, some other incidents that are taking place. So I don't know if you... Um, we're going to talk about Sister Asma's um, yeah. experiences in the city. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's important for people like him and even other people out there. So we're, we're not talking about, you know, it's, it's almost unfair just to give him um, credibility and, and argue that, you know, he's been the, um, really the basis for a lot of the Islamophobia. He's definitely contributed to it. But let's not forget that, you know, you've got several other parties. You've got the media. But in addition to the media, you've got politicians. Um, we're actually, my husband and I are ca living in Canberra at the moment. Um, my husband's a journalist in the press gallery in Parliament House. And, uh, you know, we're forgetting that we've got the Scott Morrisons of the world and the Tony Abbotts of the world and the Cory yep. Bernardes of the world um, that are constantly, you know, hammering Muslims through, sometimes very directly and sometimes indirectly through their commentary. And um, things like that, you know, almost go unchecked. Um, Rebecca alluded to this a bit earlier. If something is said about the Jewish community, people are jumping up and down to make sure that it gets corrected or that it, you know, that the, people, the perpetrators are brought to justice. In Islam, however, when there's misinformation about Muslims, you know, alhamdulillah, we've got people in our community doing great work to try and bring those journalists to justice or those politicians. But more work needs to be done, you know, a lot more effort needs to be put into this. And as a community, I think... It's really refreshing to see we're, we're getting much, much better, but, you know, we do have a long way to go. Yeah, Jazakumullah Khan. Yeah, agreed. Thank you very much uh, for your time, uh, Sister Mariam. No worries. I'm happy to be able to help and contribute in a great show, guys. Thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to having you on the show again, maybe physically next time, inshallah. Inshallah. So good to hear you, Mariam. I love listening to you, mashallah. Like, she's the best, this yeah. woman. <laughs> Likewise, Rebecca, you're doing really well. Sister Mariam <laughs> Vesada. That's right. Oh, alhamdulillah, that's good. Again, thank you very much. And um, we, we look forward to having you over next time, inshallah. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. So that was uh, Ms. Uh, Sister um, Mariam Vesada from Canberra, who um, gave us a great insight into, you know, one of these movements and, and real hope. Actually, you know, what she said, I wasn't um, expecting at all. And it, it's filled me up with hope, inshallah. Um, we have two minutes, inshallah. So uh, let me just end with this. Once the, there is an ayah, uh, surah, actually, surah al-Muddathar, salam rahim ya ayyuhal muddathar qum fa'andhar, which um, to the meaning of very rough translation, O covered one, uh, get up and warn. And what it is for, is for the Prophet Sallallahu when he uh, just received a message um, from uh, Jibreel alayhi salam, and he was very scared, and he came to his wife Khadija radiallahu anha, uh, and um, you know she covered him, and the ayah was for him to get out and to to make da'wah. Um, the uh, famous uh, da'iyah Ahmad Didat takes this ayah 
and makes tafsir to it when he's talking to a minister of Islamic um, affairs in Saudi Arabia. I think that was in during the 80s. He says, that ayah is for all the Arabs and all the Muslims and all the people who hold Islam, that they're holding Islam and they're covering themselves with it. And what they should do is they should get up. They should get up and they should, uh, you know, warn. They should tell, tell the people of Islam. So when, he, when the ayah says, Ya uh, oh you covered one, it's not just talking about the Prophet here, it's also talking about all the Muslims who are living in their ghettos, living in their houses, and not going out there at all, and it's telling them, Qum get up and tell the people about Islam. This, of course, is, is one um, you know um, point of view. Um, Allah alam if it's right or wrong, if it's right, it's from Allah, and if it's wrong, it's from myself, inshallah. We come to the end of our show. Uh, it is um, quite upsetting. I Can I say something before we go? Of course. There's words of wisdom within my story about the man that I abused on the street. We as Muslims, when we are the victims of racism, can't retaliate in an aggressive manner and swear and carry on and scream, Alhamdulillah, you don't know what's in store for that person who has victimized you. Look at me, Alhamdulillah, I'm Muslim. Who knew at that time what Allah had in store for me? Smile, say salam alaikum, say God bless, I don't care what you say. <laughs> but just standing up and being aggressive is not helping the ummah. It is not helping people come to Islam. It is not teaching them about Islam and the values that we have. That's actually a very good, very good uh, advice. And uh, again, thank you, Sister Rebecca, for your story, for your contributions. Um, this has been very useful for our listeners, very Inshallah. insightful as well. Inshallah. And we look forward also to having you again on Thank our show. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. It was good to hear your words of wisdom. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. No, not words of wisdom. Most of uh, what I do is I just read offline, so I don't actually have any thoughts of my own. I'd also like to thank um, our guest, our sorry, co-host, uh, Amr. Thank you very much, Amr. I don't know if he can hear us or not. He's in the uh, multimedia room doing his uh, Facebook Chaka and Twitter um, accounts. And also to Amr's son, Hamoudi. Thank you, Hamoudi. You're welcome, he says. And uh, now we come to the end of our show. Jazakumullah um, khairan. And we will see you next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.